listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn once again to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to say how much I appreciate the guys in the back, uh, especially those who helped uh, build that new tech booth back there. Uh, we're just like Preston Wood now, man. Look at that. I mean, I don't know. It uh, looks great. Uh, we've kind of moved, moved beyond the uh, tables with the, uh, uh, the, the cloth on top or whatever. It just looks so much better back there, and I appreciate that so much. And... Uh, all the work that they do each week. That's one of those jobs where you really don't give much thought to what those guys are doing back there until something, something goes wrong. And then you look back there and like, what, what is that? It doesn't sound right. It's squealing or what, you know, whatever. And so we've got people who are just dedicated and faithfully serve each week. Uh, I also want to say a word of congratulations. While I know that he's probably not watching the live stream today, but uh, our worship pastor, Keegan Bird, uh, probably just slipped out because his dad um, is celebrating 30 years of ministry. So think about that for a moment. Um, and I know some of you, uh, whether through extended family or whatever, um, your life or you know your family's been somehow impacted by the student ministry of Grant Bird. Um, so he's been the student pastor at First Baptist McKinney longer than Keegan's been alive. Okay, so just wrap your brain around that. Um, it's pretty crazy to be in one place and to serve faithfully that many years, but especially in student ministry. That's just almost unheard of. And so uh, we congratulate uh, Grant and... Um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said today for um, faithfulness and just uh, sticking to it. Because um, I can guarantee you in those 30 years, there were some times that he felt like throwing in the towel and quitting. Um, and so by God's grace, he's been able to uh, remain there, remain faithful. And so it's really just a, a fixture in uh, this North Dallas area, especially uh, in the area of student ministry. So our congratulations there. Well, this morning we are nearing the end of our study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Maybe hard to imagine, but we've been here all year, really. We took a short break during Easter, uh, but we started the series back in January. Lord willing, we'll wrap things up next week as we unpack chapter 16. Uh, But uh, Jace did a great job of moving us into chapter 15 last week. Uh, uh, This chapter is the go-to chapter on the subject of the resurrection, Uh, There were those at Corinth who had begun to teach that actually there is no such thing as a resurrection. For them, the very idea of resurrection was unthinkable. Paul quotes them in verse number 12. Here's their perspective. Some of you are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Now culturally, you've got to understand this. In the Greek thought, the Greek way of thinking that was common in Corinth in those days... The idea that the human body might have an eternal future was ridiculous. They believed that the body was a prison, that the material world was a thing from which we ought to escape. And so in response, as Jace covered last week through verse number 34, Paul worked there to unpack the implications of their thinking that were actually far more radical than they likely even realized. And so 
Paul showed us if there's no possibility of resurrection in general, then that must mean there's no possibility of resurrection for Jesus Christ in particular. And if Christ has not been raised, then Paul said, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus Christ did not conquer death, then Christianity is a sham. And we may as well go home right now. You cannot slide the resurrection out of the superstructure of the Christian faith and not find that the whole thing crumbles like a house of cards. I think G.H. used the example of the, the game Jenga. And so you remove that piece and it all crumbles. That's how significant the resurrection is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential. And it's not just something that we should think about or should celebrate uh, at Easter. It's something that we should think about and celebrate every Lord's Day when we gather. Uh, we sing of, we just sang of a resurrected king. So this morning, we're going to pick it up in verse number 35, where you will see that the Apostle Paul, uh, which he has done many times over, anticipates kind of a cynical response from the Corinthians. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? That's not an honest inquiry. It's an attempt to highlight what the Corinthians felt was the absurdity of Paul's teaching. Oh, sure, Paul. Resurrection. Yeah, right. Okay. Just one question. The resurrection body that you're so convinced we're all going to receive one day, just what will that look like? You're being ridiculous, Paul. That's, that's kind of their perspective. And then Paul, in verse number 36, really turns the tables on them because he calls them the fools. You foolish person, he says. And then he sets out to correct their mistake. He wants to set them straight. He, wants to, he does it by highlighting several theological themes that I want us to, to look at this morning and focus our attention upon. So let's pick it up in verse number 35 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, for the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star, uh, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven." Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he closes by saying, in light of all this, in light of this amazing, mysterious teaching about the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The German writer Leo Tolstoy, who wrote War and Peace, he was reflecting on his life. And uh, in his reflection, he wrote, My question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, he said, listen to this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That was his question. If death is an inevitability, what's the point? Well, in that first Easter Sunday morning, when the stone was rolled away and Jesus Christ came out of the garden tomb, Tolstoy's fearful question was decisively answered, wasn't it? Because Jesus Christ died and is alive forevermore, death is not the end and life is full of meaning. And in our passage this morning, as we're going to see, the Apostle Paul shows us how that is so, how that works, because Jesus lives, death no longer has the victory. And so I want us to look at these three main themes that the Apostle Paul appeals to as he writes of the resurrection. First of all, resurrection and creation. Resurrection and creation. He's dealing, again, with Corinthian skeptics who doubt the very idea of resurrection. And so in verses 36 through 41, he begins his defense of the resurrection by pointing first to creation. Where again, he says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. In other words, the idea of resurrection isn't ridiculous at all, Paul says. In fact, we deal with it all the time. When the farmer sows his seed, he buries it. And when the crop finally sprouts up and grows, the seed is gone completely. It has perished, you might say. Something new has arisen from it. That's a kind of death and resurrection all around us in every field and in every garden. And that, he says to us, is a picture of the resurrection of believers. 
And what Paul is really doing there is he develops this imagery of the seed that is sown and dies and bears fruit in resurrection. He's really building on the language of the Lord Jesus himself, who said in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 23, where Jesus is talking about his own death and resurrection, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the seed that dies and rises to bear much fruit. And Paul is saying, by using the same language only to describe our destinies, that he's saying that Jesus' death and resurrection becomes the great template for our own. It's as if he he, he unpacks this scene and he gives us a window into our own destiny. You know, sometimes when the going gets tough, and it does, and when you get weary, and we do, and worn out, and life begins to drag, in those moments it can be hard to imagine a better world to come, right? I mean, especially in weeks like this past week, where it just seems like there's just stuff coming all the time. Earthquakes in Haiti and Afghanistan and COVID and this and that and another hurricane coming to the Gulf Coast and all this stuff. It's like, what in the world? The skepticism of the Corinthians became really quite plausible in moments like those. We need to let our passage this morning, the text this morning, point us back to the antidote, not just to remind us that there's a future, glorious, wonderful, awaiting every Christian, but to remind us of the basis of that glorious destiny. The seed of our lives one day will be sown, buried. They will die and rise and bear much fruit because the seed that was Jesus Christ was buried and died and rose again. There is hope. Even in the gloom of our sorrow and our sadness and the struggles of life, there is hope because the tomb is empty and Christ has risen. Notice verses 39 through 41. You see there Paul listing the various uh, orders of the created world. Not, Not all flesh is the same. Humans have one kind, animals another, birds, even fish. They're all different. The heavenly bodies, the earthly bodies, different. The sun, the moon, the stars all differ from one another in glory. The point he's making is that each of God's creatures has been perfectly fitted for its environment by its creator. You remember the the Corinthians were asking, how are the dead raised? What kind of body? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul is answering them, and he's saying, just like the creation that we see all around us right now, so is the resurrection that awaits us. God will prepare for us a body that will fit perfectly our new environment. What I think is interesting is to notice the order in which he lists these things. It's actually the reverse of the order in which they were created on the various days of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Here's the point, I think. When the resurrection comes, when Jesus returns at the last day, it will not be some sort of upgrade on the software of our lives. No, it will be an entire renovation, not only of your life, but of all creation. It will be a thoroughgoing transformation of all things. Nothing will be left unchanged on that great day. Resurrection 
and creation. I want us to consider the second theological theme that the Apostle Paul unpacks here, and that is resurrection and transformation. We believe as Bible believers in transformation, don't we? I mean, it's a part of our very DNA as a church. We like to say it this way. We, we want to lead people on a, what, on a life-transforming journey to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. So we are all being transformed right now, being transformed by the Holy Spirit of God and by his word. It's called sanctification, and we're all somewhere in that process so long as we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I hope, by the grace of God, you can say with me, it's by God's grace I'm not what I once was, but I'm also not what I can and should be. I'm growing in grace, being transformed. So verses 42 through 44, Paul says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, raised in power, sown in natural body, raised a spiritual body. Now, notice the adjectives that Paul uses there. The seed of this life, he says, it's sown perishable, in dishonor, weakness, a natural body. That's a pretty decent description of my life and my experience in this body. Weakness, dishonor, perishable, a body that ages, a body that, yes, gets sick, a body that's fragile, a body that becomes the focus of temptation too often, even the instrument of sin, a natural body with its fleshly desires. That's me, and I got a pretty good feeling that's also you. But then he says, what's perishable will become imperishable. Paul uses similar language when he writes in 2 Corinthians, and he refers to our bodies as a tent. It's like a temporary dwelling. And he says there in 2 Corinthians, he says, in this tent we groan. <laughs> it's, a, it's a text that I often use at a graveside, because quite often we're standing under a, a, a little temporary tent. And that's the picture, that's the imagery that the Apostle Paul uses. It's a temporary dwelling. These bodies, they wear out. Amen. See, y'all hearing's already gone. You can't, you didn't even hear that. See what I'm saying? These bodies, they wear out. The older you get, the more you, you groan, the more aches and pains you have and everything, right? You can feel it. I mean, you don't recover like you once did. And all those things, that's, that's, a, that's the part of aging. That, it just, it's a challenge. But Paul says, when the Lord Jesus comes back, the perishable seed that will be, that will be raised imperishable. Bodies will not break down. They will not age. They will not hurt. They will not die. Bodies sown in dishonor, he says, will be raised in glory on that day. Now you remember, since Adam and Eve hid themselves in the garden after eating the forbidden fruit, it's what we know as the fall, because they were afraid, because they were naked, since then we have found shame and dishonor in our bodies. But the Apostle John says that what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so a day is coming when we will no longer regard ourselves with shame and dishonor, but we will, we will be made like Jesus Christ in the glory of his resurrection body, raised in glory, not in dishonor. Our bodies here, Paul says, are sown in weakness. 
On that day, they will be raised in power. The inexhaustible vitality of the risen Christ, the power of an indestructible life that is possessed by him in full will begin to empower our natural bodies, raised spiritual bodies, no longer natural at all. It will be a marvelous transformation. Through my high school years, most of you know that I uh, attended a private school over in Louisville that had a fairly strict dress code. Um, We could not roll up our sleeves. Uh, We could not unbutton our top button. Had to wear a tie every day. Uh, And if you were uh, out of of uniform, uh, if there was a dress code violation, it would mean trouble. Well, Paul is saying the resurrection, when it comes, will be that action of God finally remaking our bodies so that they fit the environment of the new world, the new creation that is to come. In other words, there's a dress code for the new creation. And without it, you will not be able to gain entry. New bodies belong in the new creation. And so resurrection demands transformation. Transformation. There's a third theme that the Apostle Paul unpacks here as he writes of the resurrection, and that is resurrection and redemption. Because our question this morning needs to be, where do I get this transformation? Oh, you you don't have to look very long on social media to see transformation photos, right? Before and after. Now, this is where I was six months ago. This is where I am today. Transform- they want to show transformation. If you, if you take this product, if you do this exercise regimen, if you, if you do this, you do this, you, you'll experience a similar transformation. Where do I get this transformation that Paul talks about? Where does it come? Well, verses 45 through 49, Paul answers this question by returning to a parallel that he has drawn already in this chapter back in verse number 22. It's the parallel between Adam and Jesus, whom he calls the last Adam, or the the second and last Adam. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, he means Jesus there, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So the first man was from the earth, a man of the the dust. The second man is from from heaven. And he says, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And so just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's us. Look out across the room. Y'all look great, but y'all all look very human. And I suspect you're saying the same thing about me, Pastor. You look very human. Yeah. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Think about that for a moment. There are two Adams, as it were. The first Adam, we know from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, made by God, spoken into being, made from the dust of the ground, a man of the earth, of the dust. And then there's another Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, unlike the first, perfectly obeyed God and so became the savior of a new creation, a new humanity. God was making new through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is heavenly. There are those who are united to the first Adam, merely earthly, without hope of the glory to come. And then there are those who are united to the last Adam, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's point is this, if you are in Jesus Christ, 
Though now for a little while you bear the image of the first Adam's likeness, we will one day certainly bear the last Adam's likeness, the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The demands of the dress code, you see, can only be met through faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ and only in Jesus is there hope of glory. In Jesus and only in Jesus is there the assurance of a new body to fit the new creation to come. So the great question becomes, are you in Christ, the second Adam? Or are you only in Adam, the first Adam? A man of the earth who will not see the glory to come. Remember, Jesus had a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. And it was in the context of that conversation that we find the probably the most famous verse of Scripture in all of the Bible, John 3.16. It was part of this conversation with Nicodemus where he talked about two births. And he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. That is to say, new life must break in upon you even here and now. Spiritually, you must be made new. Resurrection life must become yours right here and now. Two births. But there are also two deaths. There's natural death. At the end of our lives, we all must face our own natural deaths. But there's another death. So now here's the issue that I think we all need to walk away from 1 Corinthians 15 with. Here's the issue. Those who have been born only once are destined to die twice. Those who have been born twice, as the, as, as the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus shall only die once. That is, unless you are born again, unless the resurrection life of Jesus Christ erupts into your heart, changing you forever, unless you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your rescuer, you will die a natural death only to face the second death. The eternal death under the wrath and curse of Almighty Sovereign God. If you're born only once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you die once. If you will trust the one who called himself the resurrection and the life, though you die, he said, yet shall you live. And if you live and believe in him, you will never die. In fact, one day, the beginning of resurrection life that springs up in your heart here will reach, reach its, and here's the word that Jace used last week, consummation. It's consummate expression when your bodies are raised imperishable to be like his glorious body. And maybe you're at this point, you're like, Pastor, I just got to be straight up honest with you. All of that is clear as mud. That's mind-boggling. Notice what it says in most of our Bibles. It has the word mystery there, just ahead of verse number 50, right? And if you look down at verses 51 and 52, Paul even goes on to tell us a little bit of how it will happen. But he still calls it a mystery. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery in the New Testament is, is something otherwise hidden but now revealed and yet not fully comprehended. So it's a revealed truth that we do not fully comprehend. Anybody else here identify with that? I know I do. 
This is a mystery. We see some of it. We, we know some of how it will be, but, 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 but exactly how that's going to play out remains a bit mysterious. And yet there's some, some things we do know. And what we know, he says, is that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's a mystery. It'll be a glorious surprise when the day dawns and all the pieces finally fit together and we see everything that the scriptures have been teaching us and happening right before our eyes. What a day it will be. But we don't know it all yet. But here's some things we do know about it. Paul makes it clear that this will be a universal change. These things in particular, if you look at verses 51 and 52 about how this great change will come, he says, first, it will be a universal change for every Christian, for the dead as well as the living. He says, we will not all sleep, he says, but we will all be changed. That's the verse you've probably seen above the nursery, right? Yeah, you pluck it out of context and apply it to the nursery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Some of you will get that about the time you're eating lunch this afternoon. <laughs> Some, some will survive, will be alive when Jesus returns. Can you just imagine that? Others will have been dead many years when the Savior comes. But whether dead or alive, Paul says, we will all be marvelously transformed on that day. It will be a universal change. It'll be an immediate change. He says it'll be immediate, instantaneous. The word he uses in the original language is atomos, in a moment. You probably recognize the word atom in there. It was thought to be, of course, the smallest particle of matter. And he's saying the smallest conceivable unit of time imaginable is all it will take for the change. This is not going to be some gradual morphing from one thing to another. The only way we can even wrap our brains around a little bit is to think of the time that it takes for a blink. For one eyelid to meet the others is all it will take for us to be utterly, thoroughly, gloriously transformed to be like our Savior in his glorified body. It'll be a universal change. It will be an immediate change. And then it'll be a final change. He says it will be a climactic change. It will take place, he says, at the last trumpet The trumpet blast that will sound on that day is the divine author's period at the end of the book of human history. I never imagined that I would have the ability to write a book, but I can only guess if I I did ever write a book, I would take a great deal of delight in putting that final period. Boom. Right? That's kind of what this is like. This last trumpet This this final period by the divine author. Those who belong in the new creation will be taken into the new creation, having themselves been made new. And when the trumpet sounds, every clock will cease to register earth's passing moments. When the trumpet sounds, the the, the lies that we tell ourselves to to keep the witness of our Christian friends at bay will all be exposed. And look with me at verses 54 through 57. He actually moves on with a word of celebration. I love this. He's celebrating victory. When the great final moment comes, the perishable at last puts on the imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. What a moment of victory that's going to be, he says, as death is swallowed up in victory. Back in verse number 26 of this chapter, he actually called death the last enemy. 
And we know what he means by that title. What a terrible opponent death has been. There's not a person in this room, no matter how young or old you may be, who has not in some way or another been impacted by death. The death of someone you care very deeply for, someone you love, a family member, a friend, a co-worker. We know that it is part of life in a very broken, sinful world. He calls it the last enemy. So check this out. Death has met its match. Death has met its match. That's fundamentally what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Not for long, Paul says. Not for long. Death has already met his match. One has come at whose feet death has fallen already in defeat. Death has already been swallowed up in victory. Because very early in the morning on the first day of the week when the stone was rolled away and Jesus Christ who was crucified, dead, and buried broke the bonds of death forever and rose in glorious victory so that even now the Apostle Paul can sing here, Oh death, where's your victory? You've met your match. Comprehend that truth for a moment. Celebrate that victory. It's why we can sing as we often do here many times. You'll be able to sing with with new joy, with new meaning. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, listen to this next line, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Isn't that amazing? For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me because he stands in victory and he's mine comprehend that truth and celebrate the victory. And then finally, look at verse 58. For those of us who've come to trust in Jesus Christ, to live in the light of the resurrection of our Savior in hope of the resurrection of our own that is to come, there is a life to live. There's a life to live. Everything changes in light of the destiny that's aw- that awaits us. Here's a word of exhortation. Every time I read this verse, I think of, uh, of how differently you watch a game when you already know the outcome. You ever watch a game when, when, when it's been pre-recorded and you already know who won? Even if things get really tense and it looks like your team is going to lose and you're thinking, there's no way. No, you're chill. Why are you chill? Because you you already know we've won the victory. I already know how this thing ends. That's kind of what he's saying here in verse number 58. He's saying, in light of what I've been teaching you here, in light of the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ, in light of this resurrection victory, in light of all of that, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He's saying from this one agenda, 
because you know the outcome. I want to please my Savior in light of all that he has done to rescue me and secure a glorious inheritance for me. That's the victory. And so as believers, we can truthfully say, we're not just working toward victory, we're living life in victory. The victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. So would you join me in bowing our heads and closing our eyes for a moment this morning? If you're here this morning and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you're at a place where you're still searching, you're still seeking, maybe up until now you've been trying your best to be good enough, well, I've got to tell you today, that is, that is a really bad plan. Because the Bible makes it crystal clear that even on our best day, we can't be good enough. Scripture says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Here's a truth that you need to grasp today. You're in one of two places as it relates to eternity this morning. You are either in Christ because you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ or you are still in Adam. And if you are still in Adam, you've only been born once. Your natural birth, the day of your birth into this world. But you were destined to die twice. And it's not until you are born twice that you can know you'll only die once. So at the close of the service today, if you have questions if you're uncertain about your eternal destiny, uncertain about your relationship with God, I would love to take you aside, share with you from the word of God how you can know what it means to be born again. My hope and prayer is that each of us will leave here today walking in the victory. Even as we walk back out of here into a very broken world, still marked by the presence of sin, we walk in victory that is ours in Christ. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for that today. Lord, I thank you that you've not left us to somehow win the victory for ourselves. Lord, I thank you that you didn't come just to make good people better, to give us a better life here on this earth you came, lived a perfect sinless life, died a substitutionary death, conquered death so that we also could live forever. And for that, O oh Lord, we are so grateful. Thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.